Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. The following is an interview with Dr. Sanders Marble, Senior Historian at the U.S. Army Medical Department, Office of Medical History. Um, I have to start by saying that the views I'm giving today are mine, not the views of the Army or the Department of Defense or the United States government. Thanks again, Dr. Marble, for sitting down with us. Chemical weapons are one of the great horrors of World War I. When and where was the first poisonous gas used during the war? Well, there were a couple of fizzles in the use of chemical weapons in World War I, and, and I broadened that to chemical weapons to lead up to poison gas. In August of 1914, the French uh, use a few tear gas grenades that the, pol the French police had had to use against bank robbers. A bank robber you know, steals some money from a bank and hide in a house where they could throw a tear gas grenade in and it would be confined. Uh, and the robbers would come out with their hands up. But they use these in the open because there's not trenches yet and they have no effect. The Germans aren't even really apparently aware that they've been gassed. Fast forward a little bit to the, the winter of 1914-15. Uh, the Germans use a tear gas uh, on the Russian front, uh, but during the winter of 1914-15 in the Russian front, it's cold. And the gas doesn't actually turn to a vapor. So the artillery fires the shells, the, the shells break open, and there's sort of a tear gas on the snow. And the Russians do not know they've been gassed. There's no effect. The first use of, of poison gas is in uh, April 22, 1915, when the Germans release a large quantity, uh, several tons, of chlorine gas from cylinders that they've buried uh, under the, the front lines in uh, Belgium, outside the, the city of Ypres. Now, the Germans releasing it from cylinders was technically legal because the uh, international law at the time said that it is illegal to project, to, to fire projectiles with asphyxiating gases. So firing a, a projectile that had a tear gas is okay because it's not asphyxiating. Or releasing a, a poisonous gas, an asphyxiating gas, but not projecting it is okay. So this, there's a sort of technical loophole that the Germans were exploiting. It doesn't make what they did right morally, but they were following the letter of the law. That also meant that when everybody else started using poison gas, they didn't worry about saying, well, what we're doing is technically illegal, because they simply said the Germans did it first. So it's mostly a question of the delivery system in the beginning then? Yes, it was, by the letter of, of the international agreements, illegal to use a projectile to deliver an asphyxiating gas. You could let the gas loose and let the wind take it over to the other guys and asphyxiate them that way. That's fair uh, under the law uh, of the time. It's not fair anymore. So how did the delivery system of poisonous gases evolve during the war? Well, releasing it and, and hoping the wind blows in the right direction at the right speed is fraught with meteorological problems. The wind doesn't always blow the right direction, doesn't blow when you want it to, it doesn't blow, it blows too strong or not enough. Uh, so very quickly they start move, uh, putting poison gas 
various different poison gases into artillery shells uh, and mortar bombs, mortar rounds, uh, to fire it uh, where you want, when you want, and be able to mix it in with high explosive rounds or various other kinds of chemical weapons, or or mix it in with uh, uh, smoke rounds or, or some other uh, kind of projectile. They do continue using uh, releases of gas from cylinders, but only when the weather is blowing the right direction, uh, because cylinder release is a way to have a large quantity of gas hit in one place at one time. And what types of gases were being used, and how effective were they on the battlefield in the early years of the war? The first poison gas is chlorine. Uh, it's followed by uh, phosgene, which is more lethal. Uh, lower dose will uh, kill you. Those are both inhalation gases. There are some uh, efforts to use arsenides and cyanides, uh, but those don't volatilize as well. They don't. Uh, they, they tend to form powders that fall to the ground instead of staying in the air as a gas. Uh, and very few people breathe off the ground, so they're not very effective that way. By 1917, uh, gases are not very efficient uh, at killing people. They are good at making the enemy put their gas masks on for long periods of time. Their vision is reduced by peering through these uh, small holes in their the vision holes in their gas masks. They get tired because they are have trouble breathing through the, the filter. The filters degrade over time as they absorb uh, the gas and the smoke of, of combat. So it's a way of making the enemy less efficient. But at first they're effective partly because they're novel and scary. On the first day of use, uh, there are French troops that run away because there is this yellow-green cloud of gas moving towards them that smells funny, and it's not natural. This, this is weird and, and scary, and they run away. The Canadians who are right next to them take heavy casualties because they are too stubborn to run away. Uh, but there's also, you know, I, I described, there's a, a series of gases that countries try. Uh, there's also a, uh, a countervailing rush to improve the gas defenses. They, they get better and better gas masks, starting with simple uh, cotton pads that you, well, you, you peed on it uh, because the uh, nitrogen in, in urine counterbalances the chlorine in chlorine gas and, and neutralizes it. Uh, but they go to different kinds of gas masks, bigger, uh, longer-lasting filters for men like truck drivers who don't have to walk around and can carry, can just put a big filter on the seat beside them, whereas somebody who has to go forward into combat can't carry a five-pound filter dangling off their front. So by the time American troops reach the battlefield, mustard gas is the favored gas of the combatants. Um, what exactly is mustard gas and how effective was it? Mustard gas is in a, a different category of gases. Uh, the asphyxiating gases, mostly chlorine and, and phosgene, were designed to kill uh, and had the side effect of reducing the enemy troops' effectiveness. Mustard can kill, but it's really a blistering agent. Uh, it causes skin blisters. Uh, 
So it's designed to reduce your effectiveness in combat, and it's designed to put you in the hospital for a while and make you, you know, reduce the, the, the front-line strength. It's also a persistent gas. The, the asphyxiating gases blow away, uh, so you could use them ahead of your own troops if you were attacking. Mustard could be fired onto enemy communication trenches so that the troops moving up to the front and troops bringing up the food and water to the front lines would get gassed uh, as they moved through that area so that it would continue to impinge on and inflict casualties uh, behind the lines. It appears that upon entry into World War I, the U.S. Army was more concerned with shell shock and venereal disease than they were with mustard gas. Why was this, and was gas less prevalent as you moved from 1917 into 1918? Gas has become... Part of the war, it it is not novel anymore by 1917. Probably a a quarter of the shells fired are are gas shells. But if the troops are expecting gas, then gas isn't very lethal anymore. The, the, The problem the Americans had was what they called gas discipline. The troops didn't take gas too seriously. The officers might not have taken gas too seriously and convinced the troops to take it seriously. So people weren't putting their gas masks on in time. Uh, they also didn't expect to, any time shelling uh, started, to put your gas mask on because probably the, the shelling was going to involve a percentage of gas. There's also a percentage of American troops that have been told, the, whose officers are, are very convincing at saying, if you don't put your gas mask on in eight seconds, you'll be dead. Uh, so they smell something funny. They've been trained that if there's a funny smell, get your gas mask on because you need to. And they are convinced that they've been gassed. They're what the uh, the army calls gas fright casualties. So these guys go to the rear and say, I've been gassed, I've been gassed, I need to go see the doctor. They go back to the doctor and say, no, you, you haven't been gassed. So get back up to the line. And of course there were guys who wanted to get away from the, the line and said, I've, I've been gassed, I need to go see the doctor. And they'd go back, and the doctor would say, hmm, you've been here three days ago for being sick, and, and three days before that you had a, a, a stiff knee. Mm-hmm. Let's see if you're really gassed or if you're just trying to get out of being up in combat again. So they, they developed some tricks to see if guys were faking it. What steps did the Army take to protect soldiers from mustard gas and also the animals? Well, the big one is a gas mask. Uh, mustard can kill you uh, if you breathe in enough of it. Uh, it the blister, just as it would blister your skin on the outside, it can blister your, your throat on the inside. Um, so a, a gas mask will uh, stop that. They developed gas masks for animals, um, the horses and mules that provided uh, traction power, I guess is the best way to, to describe it. Um, they were experimenting with uh, gas pastes or anti-gas pastes. Sort of uh, think of it as a sunscreen, as we use sunscreen. Um, the sun can't get to your skin through the sunscreen. The gas can't get to your skin through the gas paste. And they worked for a while, but the problem was after a few hours, then they started to absorb the gas. So you needed to be clear of the gas in those few hours and then scrape the paste off. But they also found, as 
I don't want to carry the sunscreen analogy too far, but if you wear clothes, the gas doesn't get on your skin. The gas stays on the outside of your clothes. So wear an undershirt, wear your, your tunic, uh, and then if you're, you are exposed to gas, take off the tunic uh, and get a, a new one. That's the ideal. It's not always possible to do in the trenches when the troops are not out of the front line for days at a time. So soldiers could get pretty severe burn, uh, mustard gas burns, before they could get evacuated back to the rear. Do we have statistics on how many U.S. soldiers fell victim to mustard gas? 27,711 soldiers were admitted to hospital for mustard gas, uh, for exposure to mustard gas. Uh, of those, uh, 599 died, which is about a 2% death rate. That's 27,000 mustard gas admissions. There are also uh, around 33,000 patients who were admitted for gas type unspecified. So some of those men would, would have been really mustard gas or mustard and some other gas. Um, so the 2% death rate is a reasonable approximation because there should be some more deaths to add to the statistics as well. Now that compares to a, a, about an 8% died of wounds rate for people that have been hit by a, a bullet. So mustard gas is less lethal than a, uh, on average than a bullet. Whether that's good or bad is in the eye of the beholder. Nobody wants to have either one. And so what was the treatment for exposure to mustard gas? Clean it off. Uh, first off, um, take off the, the clothing that had been contaminated, uh, wash the skin uh, uh, as quickly as possible to reduce the severity of the, the burns. After that, it was rest. It's a blister, and it takes time to heal. Uh, patients typically were uh, hospitalized for about six weeks, which is a, a tremendous amount uh, of manpower lost to the fight because they're out for six weeks, then they go have to probably go back and tra retrain a little bit. Plus, they're taking medical personnel that wouldn't otherwise be needed and, and are now needed uh, to, to take care of those soldiers. The AEF had about uh, 2.9 million hospital days from mustard gas, uh, and it was the second leading cause of hospitalization, wound hospitalization, behind bullets and shells. Uh, of course, diseases caused lots of hospitalization on their own. Yeah, there were separate hospitals for gas victims, right? Yes, there were. And that was because there were separate treatments. If you're shot, you probably don't need to have a shower. They would clean around the wound before they did the operation. But with gas, the, the treatment is cleaning you off. There's also the inhalation gases. Uh, they didn't stop using chlorine and phosgene. Uh, once they started using mustard. So soldiers were certainly exposed to those inhalation gases. And, and for those, again, there's, there's separate treatment. It's basically oxygen supplementation. Wear a, an oxygen mask 10 or 20 minutes out of every hour so that your, your damaged lungs get the extra oxygen to help them. But it, those hospitals have uh, separate equipment. Uh, the doctors could be trained to do that. And, and the patients that that didn't need x-rays and didn't need uh, surgical care could be kept kept from clogging up the hospitals that had the x-ray machines and, and the operating rooms. Now, of course, there are patients who are gassed and wounded, shot. Uh, so those guys would be in the same operating rooms and 
conceivably contaminating the surgeons and and the the uh, operating room uh, linen and such, which would then, of course, go back into a sterilizer before it was used on somebody else. The AEF had a gas service section. Did the United States deploy mustard gas during the war? We did. Uh, we used this, all the, the gases that were standard uh, by the time we get to the front lines in, in 1918. So phosgene and chlorine and mustard are all used by the, uh, the Americans. Quite uh, apparently effectively. You know, the, the Germans don't enjoy being gassed by us any more than they enjoy being gassed by the French or the British. Uh, and it's possibly a little bit more effective against the Germans because by 1918 the German economy is running out of fabric and uh, so they don't have spare uniforms to change into. Uh, so a mustard gas, you know, if they're gassed, they they're going to get a worse burn, uh, blister and burn because of that. Um, after World War I, does the U.S. Army abandon gas as a weapon? No. They continue preparing for gas warfare, both defensively, uh, developing better gas masks and, and looking for other preventive measures. And uh, at least into the 1960s, uh, they continue preparing for offensive gas warfare. Uh, after, uh, in the, the 20s, the U.S. develops a gas called Lewisite, but it's not ready for World War I. It, it's prepared in time for the 20s, but then mostly dumped at sea because that's considered safe at the time. Uh, and then in World War II, we issue soldiers gas masks. We develop gas treatment as best we can because really nobody uses gas in World War II. But we actually deploy gas in case the enemy uses gas. And, and the biggest gas warfare problem in World War II is a, a German air raid hits a transport ship in a harbor in Italy. And unfortunately, that ship is full of mustard gas. There are several thousand people, uh, civilians and military personnel alike, are gassed. Uh, and they want, for military security, they put a, a lid on the, the news reporting at the time. Uh, after World War II, we developed nerve gases. Uh, we learned from the Germans' uh, development of nerve gases and are ready for a while in the Cold War to gas the Soviets if they gas us. But fortunately, that never happened. Well, Dr. Marble, thank you again for your time and for discussing mustard gas with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.